What's better than one John? Here's Johnny. Hmm. Nobody really knows. That's why we put two of them together. This is Kenzano and Wilner, a.k.a. John and John. Wilner, why don't we start this podcast? Why don't you tell our listeners what you've been doing in the last week or so and get a little scare in your household. What What is going on? Yeah, I spent, um, was it three days in the hospital. My son was hospitalized because of a freak baseball injury. And uh, when did we get home? We got back, we got home uh, Monday night uh, after it happened on Saturday. And uh, things, it was one of those deals where it kind of kept escalating. What I thought was probably not much and just taking them in as a precaution kind of kept escalating uh, to the point where we were in there for three days and, and uh, we were in trauma centers, two hospitals, emergency Man. room, all this stuff. It was, it was something else. I was unable to track the transfer portal for 72 well, hours. You're forgiven on that. I mean, I, I think, <laughs> I think most of us like, look, um, I have so many questions about this. I want to know more, but I think most of us, you know, I have three kids. You have kids. Uh, our listeners, probably a lot of listeners have children or raised kids. And we all sort of understand the work-life balance dilemma. And in our profession, Wilner, I think it gets tricky because there's no boundaries on your work day. And the weekends are when usually for family, but the weekends are also for college football and basketball and all that stuff. Um, give me an idea. What what made you like, okay, take us back to Saturday. What What causes you in the first place any concern? Well, so he plays uh, both Little League and uh, travel baseball, and he got hit uh, in his Little League game uh, in the ribs. You know, he's a right-handed he's a right-handed hitter. He got hit by a right-handed pitcher in the ribs, uh, and he was hurting for a little bit, but he stayed in the game and kept playing, finished out the game, no problem. And he was a little sore. And so then that afternoon, we had a travel ball game and you know travel balls everything's elevated right the kids are he's 11 he's playing in a 12u uh kids throw hard all this stuff well and he hadn't been hit by a pitch in probably two years he gets hit by another pitch in the travel ball and this kid was throwing hard and he got hit in basically the exact same spot in the rib rib cage literally an inch apart from the first one and he goes, he just crumpled to the ground and was in huge distress immediately. Uh, came out of the game and I, I, you know, I went into the dugout and uh, he was complaining, you know, just the pain on his whole side and his shoulder and, you know, you in the past when he's been hit or, you know, kids get hurt. And after a couple of minutes, they're they're better. He he wasn't better. Uh, so we got to the car and I'm like, you know what? I need to take him in. I was worried. he Maybe he had cracked rib. Yeah. Right. Right. So we happen to have been playing like 30 miles south of San Jose. Actually, past Gilroy. We're in San Juan Batista. You oh, yeah. Know I know it area. well. Yep. No yeah. Problem. So. You know, I get in the car and we start driving and I'm like, God, I need to take him in just to be a precaution in case he's got a cracked rib. So we eventually get to Kaiser and, we, you know, we check in 
And of course, we say, well, he got hit by two baseballs and, you know, ribs are sore, shoulders sore. They're like, okay, two and a half hours later, you know, and he's at that point, he's stable. He's hurting, but he's stable. Two and a half hours later. Can I interrupt you for a second? Because, you know, I used to have Kaiser back in the day when I lived in the Bay Area. And I I recall that, you know, when you go in there, especially in the urgent care situation, you really need to advocate, right? Like you really need to emphasize, you know, the because they all sort of look at you like your cattle when you go into those places. Yeah. No, no question. And so, and we did, you know, he's, we told him he's hurting. He got beaned twice, you know, and we showed him where, and we worried he's got a cracked rib and it hurts him to breathe deep. And we were actually in the emergency room. Okay. Uh, and, and still two and a half hours later, he's finally seen by a doctor. You know, he was able to breathe, you know, in a controlled manner for that time. Uh, two and a half hours later, we see the doctor and he starts, you know, he looks at the at the rib cage and starts feeling around in the shoulder. And then he he pushes on, you know, he starts just checking the abdomen area and he pushes kind of on the lower abdomen area. My son winces mm. and the doctor's like, well, that's concerning because he shouldn't be wincing in the abdomen if he's if he got hit in the ribs even if he's got a crack rib. So they order an ultrasound and the next thing we know he's got blood in his abdomen because of a lacerated spleen. Oh. And he's got a 4 centimeter laceration on his spleen. Damn. He did not have cracked ribs. How he ended up with a lacerated spleen without cracked ribs? Uh, is just kind of a freakish thing, but he's got this four inch, four centimeter laceration of his spleen. He's bleeding into his abdomen. So all of a sudden things get, you know, everything speeds up, right? They get him into x-ray. They get him into uh, a CT scan. You know, he goes into that magnetic, the, the magnetic thing, and he's in the, in the tube and all that with all the cameras and they're testing him and this and that. And he's, we're waiting for the results and he's in the emergency room and he's all hooked up to IVs. And the doctor comes in and says, he's got to get transferred. We don't have the, we're not really well equipped to deal with this. You're going to a different hospital, which was Santa Clara Valley Medical Center, which has an expert pediatric trauma unit. And I'm like, oh my goodness. So we're waiting for the the ambulance to take him from Kaiser to Valley Med. And I go to the, I, I went out of the room and it found the doctor. And I said, you know, explain to me, is this a life-threatening situation? And he goes, anytime there's bleeding in the abdomen, it's very serious. And I'm just like, oh my God, I thought it was maybe a cracked rib. So eventually he's in the ambulance. My my wife went with him. I drove separately to the other hospital they get to the hospital they get out of the ambulance he's carted into the emergency room and immediately he is swarmed by 10 doctors and nurses all over him he starts getting distraught because he thinks he's going to surgery right there and they're cutting him open and the doctors are just surrounding him and they're looking at the ct scan that we got at kaiser and they're checking him out and all this and they decide right then that they don't need to operate immediately because they think the bleeding may have stopped. So they put him in 
you know, we ended up, they, we went to the pediatric unit and he's there. He was there for two days for observation because, and constant monitoring. Every two hours they were in checking his vitals. Every six hours he was getting blood work done because they're worried. And I, I learned a lot about the spleen over the weekend. They're worried that it could start bleeding again. And the studies show that the first 48 hours after the trauma is when it, the spleen is most likely to start bleeding again. And I guess the spleen is filled with blood and is very fickle. And if it starts gushing into your abdomen, it can become a life-threatening situation. So they did not want to release him for until this was Saturday night. He didn't get released until late Monday afternoon, Monday evening, because they were monitoring him. And they were so worried that he could start bleeding again. And in that case, it is immediate, serious uh, surgery to get that get the spleen out. So here we are back at home, and uh, he's doing okay. He's you know shut down from contact sports for at least a month, maybe longer. Uh, and he is like, no, I went out and bought him. I went to Dick's Sporting Goods and I bought him, uh, you know those. Uh, the rib cage protectors that you use for football for yep. running backs yep. that are hard plastic. I went to Dick's and bought him this hard plastic rib cage protector to so we can set it to be right over his spleen. But he, you know, he's not doing anything and and we're just kind of all recovering from from that. It was uh, it was quite the three days. I'm glad he's okay. And I'm also glad that his parents, you know, you know your kid. We know our kids, right? And we know uh, you know, we have one kid who complains a little bit more than maybe the other one and but you knew when he was complaining, he's not a complainer, is he? Yeah, no, he's not a complainer. And he he had been hit before and hurt before. And this was like a next level, the the anguish and the way he was complaining at, initially, at, you know, just his whole side hurt. And then after five minutes, he wasn't better and he was desperate to leave the game. And he, he wanted to leave and go home, which was really kind of that was a an indication to me. He didn't even want to stay in the dugout and watch his team play. Yeah. He wanted out of there. And then we get in the car and he's kind of slumped over and he's, you know, he's complaining that his whole side is hurting, not just the spot where he got beaten. And the doctors think that it's pot and there's no way to know for sure, but they think that it's possible the spleen was weakened because of the first Mm. hit to the rib cage. And then the second one, which was just a bullet, you know, cause the laceration. We will never know. But the fact that he hadn't been hit in two years and then he gets hit in basically the same spot twice, different games, same day, you know, it was all very, very freaky. And, yeah, and that is, a you know, yeah. the bottom line is it, for in Little League, right? You know, getting out of the way of pitches is, uh, you know, is something that kids need to learn. And my kid knows how to do it a little bit. Uh, not great. And the the second pitcher, the guy in travel ball, was a righty who threw sidearm, uh. which you don't – He, my son hasn't seen that very much. And the ball just started in on him right away, and he just had no idea what to do. So, you know, it's 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 part of, part of youth sports, and we're just thankful that, 
he's okay and he didn't have to lose his spleen and, and he didn't have to have surgery. Yeah, I, I was thinking about Alex Smith with the Kansas City Chiefs back in the day. He, yeah. had, a, he had a lacerated yeah. spleen and Chris Sims had a, uh, had a yep. rupture of his spleen. Uh, and so you see this stuff and now the challenge, look, I played college baseball. The challenge for your kid now when he does get back on the field is going to be, you know, you when you're in the batter's box, you need your mind clear. And yes, you do. It's going to take a little bit of psychological adjustment from him. It's going to maybe even yep. take him getting hit again and having nothing happen because it's such a fluke, Wilner. Like, you know, for him to end up getting hit in that spot that way, I mean, y- he could play 10 more seasons and never get hit like that again. Yeah. Oh, I know. Well, and, and it's going to take an adjustment for the parents, too. <laughs> I think what we're going to do is. Uh, uh, you know, once he can actually be active again, uh, I'm going to probably take him out front and throw a bunch of wiffle balls at his head and his side just to get him used to something coming at him and yeah. learning to turn exactly the right way and all that. But it it was uh, it was quite the weekend considering, you know, I thought worst case is maybe he's got a cracked rib. And the next thing we know, that I'm asking the doctor if it's a life-threatening situation, and he doesn't say no. Oh, man. Woo! Man. How, I, how's everything with you? Yeah, uh, <laughs> nothing like that. I, I went to a spring football game over the weekend. I saw Oregon play. I saw my kid run track. Nobody got hit with a pitch in the ribs. Um, you know, the 8-year-old run, runs the 100 meters. The uh, 6-year-old is a soccer player. Fun was had by all. We did not go to the hospital. And, uh, you know, I'm knocking on wood and counting blessings, but... Sorry you went through that. And, you know, I always say that one of the things that sports, I think youth sports, the value of youth sports is that it's generally a safe place to fail, right? Like when we become adults, we don't want to have the first time we fail and have to have some resilience be in the adult world. And I, you know, I I generally say like, hey, sports is a youth sports, great place for a kid to fail and learn resilience and learn that, hey, you can fail and you get back up and you keep trying. And there is unity there for your kid, but it probably didn't feel very safe for you guys over the weekend is, you know, you're asking the doctor, is this life threatening? And they're not going, no, it's not. Yeah. Yeah. No, it, uh, for sure. But it also, it's a, you know, it, it's also a great culture for the recovery process too. Cause the little league is super supportive. The travel team is super supportive. So, you know, that, that has helped pick up his spirits the, you know, he, he heard from his coaches and a bunch of teammates and, and that's really, you know, kind of helped. And, and he's going to go uh, at some point, he's going to go, you know, watch his team play and, and maybe get back in the dugout if he's got that rib protector on him and, and uh, slowly get back into it. And, you know, we'll see how things progress. Give us an update as it happens. Uh, I'm John Canzano. You can read me at johnconzano.com, get a free subscription or a paid subscription, whatever works for you works for me. And, uh, of course, I'm here with John Wilner, Bay Area News Group, Pac12Hotline.com. Uh, we uh, we have done a Q&A episode before, and it was wildly successful. And so we put the call out on social media again for some questions. We've gathered them, got so many good questions. You know, we probably won't get to them all here, here Wilner, but where do you want to start? Why don't you just pick a question off the list we've compiled, and then I'll pick a question. We'll kind of go back and forth until we're out of words on this episode. Uh, okay. Yeah. Well, why don't I start with something that's somewhat relevant? Uh, we were, were asked, you know, what are the rumblings coming out of the PAC 12 meetings this week? And, you know, PAC 12, uh, football coaches, ADs, campus officials, and the conference executives are all in Scottsdale this week for their annual spring meetings. Presidents are not there. 
basketball coaches are not there either. They uh, they met earlier, uh, I think last month. Uh, but you know, it's certainly a big time, and other conferences are also meeting at Scottsdale. It's you know, it's an annual deal. What are the rumblings coming out of there? What are you hearing? No, well, look. First, I think it's important for our listeners to know that the um, chain of command here is kind of like a uh, playing darts, and and the presidents and chancellors are the bullseye. That's where the decisions get made, and then a rung out from there might be the trustees, and then a rung out from there might be the athletic directors. So, I think you've got to know that when the athletic directors are rumbling. You know, it they're they're get it's basically informed listening at that point. And so I am continuing to hear that they're the ten members are galvanized and it they haven't wavered in that front. I, I feel like the last few weeks has been a lot quieter from the rumor and the misinformation stuff that we had been plagued with and dealing with for six to eight months. But I, I still think like the the ten remaining members feel galvanized and appear galvanized to me. And I think they're still waiting for numbers. I think, you know, you and I have talked about what will it be June one over under, you know, what, where will they end up? But I think, you know, they are, uh, they are navigating this process. Um, of course the landscape, the media world landscape has taken some hits. There's layoffs going on. Amazon's laying off people. ESPN is trying to figure out what they want to be. And, you know, amid that I did reach out to Bob Thompson, a former guest on this podcast and the, Former president, two-time of, guest, yeah, yeah, two-time guest. Former president of Fox Sports Networks, and I asked him, you know, all of those layoffs, all of the stuff we're seeing in the ecosystem when it comes to media companies. It's you know we're getting we're seeing a lot of bad news out there and a lot of uncertainty out there. And I said, does that stuff have a direct impact on a potential negotiation? And he came back and he, you know, I asked him. I said, you know, Amazon announced layoffs. ESPN has been laying off people and trimming costs. I asked him, in your mind, how big are these kinds of things when you're negotiating a deal? And he said, it's minor. He said, you've got to have programming. So he still thinks that, you know, these these entities, Amazon, ESPN, they're going to need content. And so I think, you know, it is status quo. I think they are crawling along towards a resolution. We all want it over with. But I haven't heard any rumblings, and maybe you can speak to it, that lead me to believe that this conference is splintering or in trouble it just feels like it's headed toward the remaining 10 members signing a media rights deal and probably a deal that that expires in 2029 and then going at it again at that point. Yeah, well, no, I think that's certainly the most likely outcome. And I think it's interesting that, you know, at this point, right, uh, we saw important development, right? The Illinois president who runs the he's the chair of the big Big Ten Council made it pretty clear that expansion is not at the top of their to do list right these days. So you know, if you take the uh, approach that Washington and Oregon don't really have an option at this point, then the focus is on the Pac-12's four corner schools uh, and what are they going to do and and how patient are their presidents going to be. And look, Arizona's Robert Robbins and Colorado's Phil DiStefano have both said in the last, what has it been, six weeks or so, that they are willing to be patient and see the deal before they make any decisions. And to me, that's that's a real important piece because if nobody panics, the chances of the Pac-12 staying together are much, much better. Utah and ASU, I've never felt like they were uh, big flight risks unless everything was kind of falling apart. Colorado and Arizona, a little bit, little bit more, you know, curiosity about the, what they're thinking. And as long as they're 
uh, president and chancellor are willing to wait this out and and give it time, uh, I think the cha- the conference has a has a better chance to stick together. I want to move on to another question. Um, if the TV negotiations tell the Pac-12 offices that, hey, there's not a net annual dollar figure payout gain per school from adding teams, basically if uh, no value in adding an expansion team, would they just stay at 10? Or is there some other compelling reason to expand that goes beyond money? This is from Buck. Um, I'll go first on this one because I've asked this yeah, question go. directly. And, and the answer I get back is that, you know, they were going to, they were approved to explore four potential expansion schools. The board approved the conference to do that. They did their diligence. They then, in the 11th hour, will ask the potential media partners, do, you know, does school X add value to the media deal? If it doesn't add value to the deal, I'm being told that closes the door on expansion. TV money, media rights money drives expansion. Uh, And I think that's important to know. I wonder if they can. I I think it'd be short sighted of them to just do it based on, uh, you know, every last cent, to be honest. And it kind of depends on whether they can manipulate the situation and, and bring those schools in at cut rates. Right. Maybe if it's a six year deal, maybe there are 25 percent shares the first two and then 50 and 75. But I think they have got to take a broader view, uh, especially with San Diego State. I, you know, you're going to be okay with the Big 12, with San Diego State being in the Big 12 and USC and UCLA being in the Big 10. I think that's a mistake on a lot of a lot of fronts, to be yeah, honest. Yeah, but I, I, think, uh, I think San Diego State's going to add value, don't you? And I think so. I think it checks the box. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, that adding value means that San Diego State's going to bring is worth, you know, what, 30, 30, if it's it's a for whole share, you know, bringing 30 something million in. I don't know. Uh, but again, they may be able to construct a, a, a tiered uh, revenue share plan that makes San Diego State worthwhile. And and part of it, too, is the extra games that are available if you add two schools. Right. You can play. Uh, what is it? Tw- you know, 20 more games. So uh, I think that there's a. You know, there are ways that those schools could be valuable without it, you know, in, in indirect manners, but ma- but ways that help the conference long hauls. SMU, same thing, you know, uh, getting into Dallas, having a campus in Dallas could help increase your, you know, your presence for uh, in, t- in Texas for applications for your general student body not just, uh, you know, athletic recruits, you know, so there's a lot of ways you can add value. And I think that there's some strength in numbers and the presidents need to take the very long view of this thing. Yeah. And I think, I do think Dallas, Fort Worth and Southern California are going to check the media rights value box, but I'm going to throw something else out there. I talked to two former PAC 12 ADs, just spitballing, talking with them. And I said, what would you do if you were the Pac-12 and, you know, they said that the ultimate play here for the Pac-12 would be to leave the door open in 2030 for UCLA in particular to come back. And it's why I kind of wonder if, you know, they only approved four, you know, the exploration of four. I kind of wonder if they would only add one here, Wilner, and potentially then offer UCLA in 2030 UCLA by then will have experienced some travel in the non-revenue generating sports. Uh, of course, they will have had a windfall in the Big Ten, but they will also have uh, had to compete with Ohio State and Michigan and Penn State and 
Maybe they would be looking wistfully back at the Pac-12. I don't know. But the ADs I spoke with said, why not offer them a tiered uh, bonus to come back to the conference? Maybe instead of, uh, you know, 100% share, they're getting 125%, 130%. You could push that number you know, again, they're getting uh, somewhere between 69 and $72 million in media rights value in that first year. But could you push the Pac-12 number above 50? Could you get it to 55? Could you get it to 59? And at what point would UCLA go, hey, you know, now it's worth looking at? So I kind of wonder if the plan, we've watched the conference be very cordial to UCLA, leave the door open, say that they're going to treat them like a member, even though everybody knows there's hard feelings. So I'm kind of wondering, like, if the Pac-12's ultimate play is to add San Diego State, go to 11, and then look five years into the future and go, hey, UCLA, the door's open if you want to come back. I don't think USC ever comes back, but UCLA might. Well, and, you know, part of that, too, depends on how how uh, the UC Board of Regents, how hard they slap the Bruins around for that Cal tax, right? Because if they got to pay $10 million a year to subsidize Cal in addition to the additional travel costs of about 10 million a year then you know their their extra revenue is certainly not what you know uh you could argue that that it would be worth potentially worthwhile for them to come back it, especially and this is why I think SMU is important if that scenario were to happen and UCLA were to consider coming back in 2030 and you've also got the Dallas market and you're in the Pac-12 and yeah. and after 5 6 years in the Pac-12 SMU's donors have, you know, uh, and they got a huge wealthy donor base. They've plowed resources into football. That football program is competitive and relevant. And then you're the Pac-12, and it's 2029, and you're negotiating. And you could say, "Look, we gonna we got Dallas, and we're gonna get UCLA back." Uh, that you know that would certainly be worth something. That's that's certainly like a fourth dimensional chess piece. Yeah, but uh, it's that's got to be. Those are the things they've got to be thinking about, and ho hopefully they you know for the sake of the schools they are thinking about it and they are thinking outside the box on this whole thing. Yeah, and that's the win. And the ads that I spoke with were in the room when they went to that equal revenue sharing model. Remember under Larry Scott, and he you know the the LA schools could not have been happy about that, and so. They were people who at the time were probably doing cartwheels saying, hey, this is great. You know, you know, Washington State and Oregon and Washington and UCLA, USC, everybody gets the same amount of money. But over time, uh, that was it didn't make sense. And I think that was a big mistake. Uh, first by Larry Scott in his era, of course. And then George Klyovkov, as he came into the conference, I think he should have been tuned into that. And, you know, I know they asked questions. Maybe it was too late. Maybe by then UCLA and USC had made their mind up that they, they wanted out. But um, equal revenue sharing while you're sitting in uh, a, a market that has, you know, 5.7 million TV households and a market where the cost of living is significantly higher than some other places in the conference could not have done well by UCLA and USC. I mean, it had to. Yeah, the story yeah. I heard. Story I heard is that the ADs Dan Guerrero from UCLA and Pat Hayden from SC they went into the meeting uh, about the revenue shares with this whole plan and they were going to hold out and then Larry Scott brings that whole thing up and Hayden just caves immediately. Okay, sure, that's fine. And and UCLA is <laughs> like, wait, what? <laughs> Brutal. But yeah, yeah, that certainly that whole thing stuck with USC fans in their craw for for many years, um, and it's understandable. 
But at the same time, you go to unequal share. I mean, look what Texas has done in the Big 12 for the last however many decades, right? You got an unequal share, you, that leads to problems. If you're gonna if you're gonna do a postseason revenue splits based on performance, that's a different thing. But unequal shares out of the primary broadcast revenue stream, I don't know. That's I think it's risky. All right, let's move to another question. Casey, what do we got here? Casey says, "I'll let you go here, Wilner. How do you see the Mountain West replacing San Diego State if they are added to the Pac-12?" Uh, I'm not sure that the Mountain West has got a great option, and and but and that's kind of reflects the Pac-12's situation too. You cut the country in half. There aren't that many schools that are playing major college football in the left half of the country, right? Uh, I don't know what they do. They, you know, maybe they just go move on without them. And it depends also, is the big 12 going to take anybody? You know, I, I kind of heard, right. The big 12 might be, have some interest in UNLV. Uh, I just, it, it's not, I don't know that the, it's just going to be San Diego state. And that's something that the mountain West is going to have to kind of wait and see. They're at the mercy of the other conferences, but there's not, you know, there's not another F FBS program that makes sense geog uh, in terms of the geography for them to add. Really, you're going to go into Conference USA and try to raid Conference USA. That doesn't doesn't really make sense to me. Sun Belt, you can't you can't do that. So they're they're kind of stuck, just like the Pac-12 is stuck uh, without uh, very many good options. You know, really for a decade or more. The only good options for the Pac-12 were Texas and Oklahoma, and they tried that, and it didn't work. There just aren't many schools out west. I asked Gloria Navarez, the the Mountain West commissioner, uh, this question, and and she's you know she gave me back a quote that said you know the Mountain West has been meeting regularly to survey the landscape and explore expansion options, um, but as I probe deeper, you know they're caught in a position, and they have to be ready for every option, whether it's just San Diego State leaving is it you know is unlv also out there to be had by somebody it, you know they have to be ready they also probably were as they were hearing all that disinformation were were following sort of the the pac-12 like is, is the pac-12 splintering up because we were hearing all that out of the big 12 footprint and so i think that they were sitting back and you're right there aren't great options for them and and i do think like montana and montana state in the big sky are interesting they're not, that's not adding value to the Mountain West. You don't have that's not going to add money to your TV deal. The only thing that kind of popped into my head as you were talking there was, you know, Gloria comes from the WCC where Gonzaga uh, lives. And, you know, is it possible they could go for a basketball only replacement? I don't know. I don't know if it pencils out. And I, don't, and I frankly don't know as much as Gonzaga brings to the table. I don't know if it would be worth giving them what they're going to need to have to, to join the Mountain West. Like, they they would need to have a uh, lopsided revenue-sharing model, keeping their own NCAA tournament distributions. And at that point, I'm just not sure if that pencils out for the Mountain West. Uh, here's one for you, football-related. Uh, out of the current roster of head coaches in the Pac-12, when the coaching carousel cranks up again, presumably next offseason or next winter, which coach is most likely to jump ship for perceived greener pastures? That's a good one for you because, you know, there's a couple up in your neighborhood that yeah. I would wonder about. Well, I'll say this at Oregon State. Jonathan Smith, I think if he stays in college football, he stays at Oregon State. 
he has talked about maybe one day wanting to be in the NFL. So has Brian Lindgren, his offensive coordinator. And we all know that staff has stayed together. So I kind of think, like, if the 49ers job opened one day and Jonathan Smith had, you know, strung together 10-win seasons at Oregon State, he could be a threat to leave for the NFL. And, you know, coaches have left Oregon State for the NFL before. Hasn't gone that well. Mike Riley, Dennis Erickson, um, it ends up with them uh, returning to Oregon State. So maybe he learns the lesson there. Uh, I think Deion Sanders at Colorado is always a flight risk if he has success. I think Dan Lanning at Oregon is going to stay at Oregon unless a prime SEC job opened up that was a no-brainer for him. I think Kalen DeBoer is at Washington for a while. Jake Dickert looks embedded there. Uh, You know, as I look around this conference, Kyle Whittingham's not going anywhere at Utah. I think if Lincoln Riley has big success at USC, the NFL could appeal to him because I just don't know if he's going to get another player like Caleb Williams and and be able to replicate that kind of success. So that's there. And then Coach Prime at Colorado. I just think if he has great success, Colorado will be celebrated for the hire, and he'll also you know jump to Florida State or jump to wherever his dream job is, or or uh, you know maybe when he's done coaching his kids, he's done coaching. I don't know. Yeah, I, I bet I would put Jed Fish on that list because, you know, he doesn't have any ties to Arizona or Tucson, and it's a difficult job. If somehow he got them into the 8-4, and 7-5 and five, uh, window and had another offer, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if he left because it's just a very difficult job in Tucson. Uh, so you think, let's say, though, Chip, Kelly uh, doesn't want to deal with the Big Ten or – Gets in the Big Ten, doesn't like it. A few years, he leaves. And UCLA goes to Jonathan Smith and says, why don't you come home? You want to come home and coach in the Big Ten? You don't think he'd take it? I think the SC job would be more appealing to him just because he grew up going to those games and sitting, you know, on the 40-yard line with his family. But, you know, as I talk to him and I as I watch what he's doing in Corvallis, he's a low-profile guy. Like, I think yes, he, en- he is. I think he enjoys, you know, jumping on the trampoline in the backyard with his kids and not having, you know, the whole world know how many bathrooms he has and where he's living near the beach. And, you know, and I, you know, frankly, I was thinking about this the other day. Like, you know, we see a lot of families of these coaches. The Smith family, you know, I know they he has kids that play Little League and, you know, they're in baseball and you know, they're into sports. I know that his, you know, his wife is busy with the kids and he's busy with football, but... We don't see – they're not high-profile people, and I think they like that. And for that reason, I think he really wants to coach. But I do think being in the NFL, coaching the best players on the planet someday would appeal to him. And I still think he's still got some time there. But if he strings together, let's say they win three three time, three seasons in a row, they win 10-plus games. I think he does become a little bit of a, a candidate in the NFL for people who go, look at what they're running. It's a pro-style offense. It's you know a lot like you know when they give film to their guys – they are they are studying the 49ers film but Smith's only 44. I think he's got some uh, some some ball left to play or you know another step there's another job out there for him if he wants it someday. Yep. Here's a good one. Uh you sh- you should take it. This is right up your alley. Uh what role do consultants play in the spreading of rumors between the Pac-12 and Big 12? John hit on this during one of his radio shows. And I'm starting to think that's where half of the garbage comes from. Yeah, and the I floor think, is yours. Uh, the floor is yours. Yeah, I think it's more than half the garbage. I think there's a lot of garbage, both always. And and I'll speak for myself. I've had some of the consultants that work with schools and conferences reach directly out to me, and you know they're lobbying me softly. They're sending me data and 
information and, you know, uh, and, you know, numbers on revenue and media rights. And they're, they're nudging me. I can feel them nudging me toward their agenda. Right. Well, they're all getting paid by these schools and these conferences. And and it, this is not a Big 12, Pac-12, Big 10, SEC, ACC thing. It's all of them. And some of the consulting firms are working with multiple programs inside different conferences. But I do think that there's some management of the public narrative that is going on in sports that we have not seen before. Like this is a lot of this stuff existed in business, existed in politics. Um, you know, there's manipulation of the stock market. There's manipulation of, uh, you know, the uh, the uh, temperature in the room and the uh, and the narrative when it comes to political viewpoints. But we haven't really seen it in sports, and we are seeing it definitely now. So I think these consulting firms, some of them charge the schools and the conferences sixty thousand dollars a month. Wilner, like this is we should have a consulting firm. We should be in that business. Like you know, we're giving this stuff away here on this podcast, and and uh, I think. That you have to be careful when you're hearing a chorus of information come from, you know, the Big 12 footprint. Let's use that as an example. And it's the same disinformation over and over and over again. And it doesn't match with what the actual presidents and chancellors are saying in the Pac-12 conference. And it's being refuted and then brought back up and then refuted and then brought back up. I think you have to pay attention to that. It's more than rumor. I think there's a strategy in it. And I do think some of the consulting firms... You know, and, and, and maybe it's not all devious, you know, maybe they just they have a little bit of an agenda and they've been hired to to show that, you know, hey, the uh, their conference or their school is worth more than others. And they want that to be the public narrative. And and I do think that there's some of that going on. What about you? Oh, it's definitely going on. And I think it has an effect. Right. I mean, the public narrative can can serve to undermine stability. Right. And that's some would argue that's exactly what folks in the Big 12 footprint are doing. Uh, and it all just speaks to how this is so different. This era of realignment, expansion in college sport is so different from what took place previously. Even 10 years ago, you know, the Pac-12 adds Colorado and Utah and looks the, the whole thing with Larry Scott looking at Texas and Oklahoma. You know, that got public, but it was way down the road when it got public. This this stuff is playing out this behind the stuff that's true and false that's in public and private is all playing out in real time on social media. And it has it has changed the whole dynamic of of realignment and of the, the decisions that the presidents have got to make, because now everybody knows this stuff, true or false. And they're they're in the president's ears and they're in the trustees ears and the regents ears. It's just everything is different about it. And there's no reason to think it's not going to be like this the next time we have a wave of realignment at the end of the, you know, certainly something's going to happen when the big, big 10 renegotiates its deal in seven years. And it'll be interesting to see what is the public face of realignment at that point. Right. I mean, are we going to know everything that's going on from the get go? It And because the consultants are leaking and because you've got various sources of, of social media, it's it just I, I'm fascinated by how the whole thing is played out at the forty thousand foot level, regardless of whether it's the Pac-12 or the Big Twelve, and you know which schools talking to what conference. It's just everything has changed, and it reflects how college sports has changed and become such a big big business. And then you got the expansion of the playoff, and the lines are there's just no lines anywhere. 
Yeah, and it used to be, I noted this on my radio show about eight or ten years ago. All of a sudden, we weren't talking about sports for the first time. We started talking about um, all of the political agendas. Um, all, you know, it was, you know, we were debating Colin Kaepernick, and we were debating, you know, the, the player reaction and the league reaction and the owner reaction. And, and it became apparent that sports stadiums and the sports venue in general was one of the last places where everyone came together. And I think it's why some of these conversations were happening. Some of these social conversations were happening with stadiums as the focal point because we had, for the first time, you know, you had people uh, that thought we had one ideology and another ideology in the same place rooting for the same team, but they did not agree on the issues that were playing out in front of them that were happening kind of in the background. And so sports is one of the last places where we all gather. Because you, we all know that if you go on your Facebook feed or your Twitter feed, the algorithm is going to feed you what you know you are more prone to spend time with and engage with. And so I do think that the stadiums became kind of uh, uh, a, a battleground for some of the co- topics and conversations that people weren't having in other forums. And and I think you know I, I like that we've one day we will get back to talking about sports. And on that note, Rebar six one nine on Twitter has a question, Wilner, and this one, I, I, I'm dying to hear your answer. What are you most looking forward to covering in the post-media deal era? Uh, well, that's a good question. The thing is, there is not going to be a post-media deal era, really. I mean, the Pac-12, sure, they're going to sign an agreement for five years or whatever, seven years, but the whole, the media piece uh, of the conference uh future and power five future the media piece is never going to go away right uh it's not going to be in our face on a daily basis but it's never going to go away and i find the whole the whole media uh landscape and its impact on college sports and the way we consume events uh i think the whole thing is fascinating uh i sure i'll be happy when i don't have to uh think about it on a day-to-day basis and the thing that I'm interested in, to be honest, is is the gambling piece, because I, first of all, I think the Pac-12 is probably going to have some kind of deal in its in its media agreement where they're it's selling its data to gaming companies. But I just think that the gambling piece, not only to Pac-12 but all of college football and all of sports, is going to uh, be a tra- have a transformative effect on how we watch sports and experience entertainment at home, uh, at the stadiums, because we're not that far away from you being able to fire up your big screen and having uh, the option to do a prop bet on whether the next play is a run or a pass, right? And that's that's coming soon and it's going to change things and i just think that is going to add a whole element to how you cover college sports and uh i don't and i think there's going to there's some some pieces of we don't know how it's going to affect the games but uh and affect the schools and affect the finances but to me that's like the next unknown that i'm i can't wait to experience and and figure out what the impact is. Yeah. And I think, how about you? How about you? Well, I, I think in the short term, I'm really looking forward to seeing this PAC 12 season and all of the great quarterbacks and how good can this, how good can this be? 
Like, you know, a big question for me. And then beyond that, like, look, you were talking about, like, being able to place a wager. I don't know about you, but I was watching Amazon Thursday Night Football during the NFL season, and I kept waiting for them to, like, focus on the sideline, you know, Kyle Shanahan on the sideline wearing a 49ers cap and go, just click your remote and buy the cap. Like, you know, I think I think that we're yeah. all going to lose a little innocence when we see all of that stuff happening. I think we already probably have with ticket prices and and the revenue involved. Uh, well, and that's, that's certainly a piece of, you know, the the consumerism is certainly a piece of why Apple and Amazon are interested in live sports, right? I mean, they, they are seeing those as not ways to show you sports, but ways to get to your wallet and uh, sell their products. And it's it's going to, I just think the, the rate of change is not incremental it's exponential and uh the you know there's some technology pieces that obviously need to be figured out but when it comes it's going to change everything about how we consume sports here's another one for you a listener wants to know who gets bill walton when ucla leaves for the big 10 what's going to happen to bill walton is will he be on the pac-12 network will he follow ucla and be on the big 10 network or what what happens to walton I mean, can you, I'm picturing him schlepping through the Big Ten in the dead of winter, and and I'm I'm not sure that's in Bill's future. You know, first of all, probably not going to be a Pac-12 network that's going to broadcast games. You know, there may be a Pac-12 network or a, a Pac-12 studio that show that has a streaming service for Olympic sports. But I think Pac-12 men's basketball is going to be on. You know, one of the major networks, whether whether who, whether it's Apple or Amazon or ESPN, I don't know. But uh, I, I would say Bill's going to stay. He loves the Pac-12. He, he loves UCLA, but they're leaving. So I, I my guess is Bill stays and continues to do Pac-12 games. What do you think? Yeah, and I think he, I I think we kind of hinted around that when we had him on the podcast episode, and he kind of gave a non-answer to it. But I just can't see him. You know, given how he values his health and travel and his lifestyle in the western part of the united states i think he probably ends up working for espn or maybe calling ucla games uh that are on the west coast but i cannot see him going east to call games it's just schlepping from state college to madison in the middle of january no i don't either fit him and so i don't (laughs) i don't think that's where he ends up all right what question here's one for you Uh, with all the media fuss Coach Prime is creating, could that affect the Pac-12 media deal? Yeah, I mean, I think I think Colorado already is going to add value to the Pac-12, and I think the Pac-12 did a really interesting thing with the football schedule. This just, I don't know if this was the question, but I'll, I'll spin it this way. Um, you know, Colorado has this brutal start to their season, but I think the Pac-12 was being very strategic in trying to get a high-profile conference game in the first two weeks of the season. Now, he, you know, they play TCU, they play Nebraska, they play Colorado State, then they're at Oregon, and then they play USC. I do think the conference was looking at the schedule going, how do we get ESPN in game day to Eugene or to that USC-Colorado game in, in the second week of the Pac-12 season? You know, Some of this is going to be incumbent upon Coach Prime and his team to win a game or two. If that happens, and Oregon is sailing through their non-conference schedule, uh, I wouldn't be surprised to see some added value in week one of the Pac-12 season. But I think long-term, you know, I don't think it adds significant value because I don't think Coach Prime, like the media companies aren't going to go, hey, is he going to be here five years from now? They don't know that. 
So I think short term there's some there's some seasoning added to the deal, but I don't think it significantly moves the meter. How about you? Yeah, no, I agree with you. I, I don't think that there, you know, ESPN's not gonna say here's an extra three million per school because you guys got Dion. Um, but it does ra- you know, it raises uh the level of play for Colorado and potentially gives the the conference, you know, another another attractive team. And I think that they you know, if you look at the schedule, they attempted, and we won't know if they succeeded, but they attempted to to schedule one at least one game every week that would receive consideration for you know a national primetime spot. Um, and and I think that the way they put those Colorado games early in September is part of it. But you can you can go through and you can pretty easily circle. I think there's one week maybe where. You, I couldn't do it, but you can circle and say, hey, that game, I could see that game on ABC at 5 p.m. or on Fox at, at 5 p.m. pretty much every week. And I think that's one of the things that the conference is doing uh, a much better job of is the, is the football schedule. I mean, it used to just be kind of a disaster back when, when they had a general counsel running their football operation. And now they got a football player running their football operation. And there's a, you know, it's a big difference. And the schedule is one of the ways that that difference is manifest. And it's, it's a good schedule and it's a balanced schedule. And, and Colorado is an important part of it. There's no question. The other thing too, is like, you know, when you look at it, there's a real good chance that Oregon and Washington are undefeated and have a bye week entering their matchup. And they really backloaded the possible cannibalization of this conference, those five ranked teams. It's back it's loaded into the back of the football schedule. You know, that last five or six weeks is is a gauntlet. And you see some of the better teams we expect to be better playing each other. Do you think that that is designed to create a bunch of ranked teams in the Pac-12 early on and a lot of buzz and get ESPN and Fox interested and and then later in the year they we we get a we get to find out who's really good or what are they doing there? Oh yeah, no, I think no doubt about that. Um you know, they they want the those best games in November, right? November is sweeps for the, their your TV partners and the baseball's over, so you got the most eyes on college football in November, and they they want to have playoff contenders front and center for everybody to see, and potentially Heisman Trophy contenders too, which is why the Colorado piece is so important because it's harder to get you know attractive games in September if you want to if you want to put a lot of your best games in the second half of October and November, then you kind of have to look around to find good ones for September and Colorado because of Dion gives them two games against SC and Oregon that they wouldn't have had as attractive matchups if Colorado hadn't hired Dion. All right, Wilner, a uh, question for you is a PAC 12 conference championship football game relevant in a 12 team playoff era. We've seen this bantered about. It came up a little bit with a four team playoff last season but in a, with a 12-team playoff, an expansion of the playoff, is a conference championship game relevant? Uh, it, it certainly is. It gives you a, a chance to get uh, a second team in, right? Potentially, that's one way it's relevant. First of all, it's relevant to your media partners because they're going to be able to promote it as the winner of this game gets into the gets into the playoff. So it's got a lot of value to your TV partners. Uh, but, you know, if you've got a you know, a team that's ranked, uh, you know, 
fifth and you got a team that's ranked 14th and the team that's ranked 14th wins, then you got a pretty good chance of getting both in. Uh, I think that that's, that's the way it's going to help. And plus, it's not like you're going to be able to back out. You, you can't say, oh, thanks, but no thanks. We're, we're going to take a pass. You're, you're going to be obligated to, to play. To me, the interesting question is whether they decide they want to go back to divisions uh, with the expanded playoff, whether they want to keep it just as a, a full – if they add two teams, you know, or do they keep it just one one group of 12, and then how are they going to structure the schedule, right? That's – they want to maximize the schedule to help them with the playoff, but they can't do it because they don't know who's in the conference yet. And so that mm-hmm. those pieces are kind of on hold – but there's going to be a real strategy to figuring out how they want to deal with the the schedule and also access to the championship game and whether it's the teams with the best records or division winners and and they got they got a lot of work to do on those things. I mean, I think first of all, there's no way that the TV, the media partners are going to give back inventory and say we don't want the championship games. No, they're going to want those games because they are lucrative. Those those are valuable games to the networks and so it, it again, money's driving the bus here. So, you know, some of us may see some problems on the horizon, but they're not they're not going to do away with those games because they're just worth too much to the networks. Secondarily, you know, Mark Harlan, the Utah AD, is on the record. He's you know he he's looked at the the in a typical year, you know, in the last decade or so, how many teams would the Pac-12 get in? And we all saw the models from last season with USC and Utah both getting in what would have been an expanded playoff. One is a four seed. Now there is a 10 seed. Um, I think in most years, the Pac-12 is going to get two teams anyway. So, um, yeah, there may not be great incentive for, you know, a, a one loss or an undefeated team to play that game and potentially get dinged and get knocked out of the playoff or get uh, have their seeding affected by it. But I think they will play. And there's a whole bunch of let's wait and see going on with this expanded playoff as it is. They just released the schedule for 2024 and 2025. Everybody knows they're going to have to play nice around the NFL schedule. So I think, you know, they're definitely taking a, hey, let's test this, see how it goes. Will people watch games on New Year's Eve and New Year's Day? I will. Will fans travel to the quarterfinals and the semifinals? I have doubts that fans that whose teams are advancing are going to attend three games if they make the championship game. So there's going to be some wait and see here with all of this. And I think that's one of those things that's kind of in the back of the minds of the people who are organizing this thing. But for now, I would expect that the championship games stay and stay relevant because they're ringing the register when they play that game, Wilner. What do you got? Yes, they are. Ching, ching. Uh, all right, last last one here. Uh, I'm seeing a lot of college baseball on ESPN channels. Rarely are Pac-12 teams on ESPN. What in the current contract keeps the Pac-12 off ESPN, and can the next media deal increase the amount of Pac-12 baseball we see on ESPN? I mean, anything's possible, but I'm looking more to the Pac-12 baseball tournament that's coming up later in May, later this month, all right? This is their second year doing it. It, I think it was mostly successful last year, although they burned some arms out with the format, and I think they're tweaking it, you know, and going, okay, is it, you know, is it too much to ask? these teams to play a whole bunch of games and then the good teams have to go into the NCAA tournament at the end of it. But the Pac-12 has got some good ball that is played and there are a multitude of programs that have demonstrated that. I do think that we have to remember that football drives media rights. 
Bas- men's basketball is a secondary driver. Baseball, like the rest of uh, the other Olympic sports, um, doesn't bring a lot of money to the table. And so I don't think ESPN necessarily is going to be falling over itself to get those games. But I do think there's a place on, you know, with one of the media partners after a deal gets done for some more Pac-12 baseball, and in particular that that tournament that they created. They invented this tournament out of thin air. It wasn't invented because, hey, this is going to be fun. It was invented because, hey, that gives us an asset to sell to TV. Yeah, same with the softball tournament, right? I mean, the assets, inventory, whether it's on ESPN or whether or ESPN Plus, more likely, or it's it's streamed by the next uh, version of the Pac-12 networks, you know, the the streaming service that they're going to set up in that production studio. Uh, it, it's, it's inventory, it's content. And, and there's, there's an audience, it may be small, but you know, there's a passionate audience for, for softball and baseball and other Olympic sports that I'm sure they're going to try to tap into. Yeah. I think I, I'm, I'm interested to see how this year two goes because there were some wrinkles in year one, but I think it's going to be a lot of fun. I love the questions, man. We, we have to do this more often and get more questions, but, uh, I, I appreciate everybody who's listening to this podcast. Make sure you're subscribed. Appreciate you. Uh, we have a lot of fun doing it. And Wilner, I'm glad your kid's okay. Uh, you know, go slow Thank with him and get him back in the lineup at some point. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. And thanks to all our listeners. As always, he is the great John Canzano, johncanzano.com. I am John Wilner, Pac-12 Hotline, Bay Area News Group. And thanks everybody for listening. We will be back next week.